it feels really quite refreshing after decades of internal strife that we have an issue where we show that actually there are some fundamental values that unite us. Hello, and welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode, I speak with someone who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this conversation, I connected with Nick Hare about the war in Ukraine and what we can learn from it. Nick is founder of Aleph Insights, an analytics consultancy that specializes in supporting strategic decision-making for both businesses and government in the fields of defense, security, intelligence, and international affairs. Prior to that, Nick worked in various roles at the Ministry of Defense, the Cabinet Office, and in the intelligence community in UK government. I first met Nick via an old school friend, and I've gone on to work with him and Elf Insights a number of times over the last decade. In this conversation, recorded on April 1st, we talked about the current war in Ukraine, and in particular, what we can learn about analysis and decision-making during such turbulent times. And I was really keen to discuss with Nick whether there is a new world order emerging, and if so, what might some of those possible future scenarios look like. So I started out by asking him how the war in Ukraine has affected him personally, and whether he agrees that we are past a point of no return. Enjoy! Certainly, it's impacted my productivity this month. I've been addicted to the news. Yeah, I think I've doom scrolled further than the Russian army has advanced. <laughs> and uh, as you say, it is we're in this privileged position of watching something very significant taking place, yeah. and uh, but being really relatively informed about it. However, I think it's got to be worth saying that we should always be wary of assuming that the present is is more informative than it is and i feel like even now i can feel hindsight bias kicking in okay i can feel what do you mean well so you know during january when we were watching the build-up and the americans were saying the russians are going to invade and half of the audience didn't believe them half of them thought this would happen and in one sense it's been going on for a long time anyway you know, and this was just a more overt way of intervening in Ukraine. And then, of course, when it actually happened, it now starts to feel like it was inevitable. And, and I think that's something we've got to be careful about. Mm. If you think about there's a couple of things which, which occurred to me, which I feel like have sort of now look a lot shakier. But um, perhaps six months ago, a year ago, five years ago, seemed sort of almost inevitable part of the conversation. So one of them is about the nature of warfare and the other is about NATO. You know, if you think about what people have been saying about NATO for the last, you know, well, let's say 30 years, you know, for 30 years ago, Soviet Union disappeared and NATO sort of really struggled to find a role. NATO started to become a bit more adventurous in the noughties and started getting involved in, you know, different conflicts. And now suddenly NATO is back on the agenda. It's NATO is super relevant again. You've got countries on the periphery of Europe desperate to sign up, including potentially, of course, Ukraine, although that's that's one of the key issues. We've gone from NATO dustbin of history to NATO super relevant in the space of a couple of months. And then if you think about the nature of warfare, the nature of warfare has completely changed. You know, the threats are no longer big nations with large conventional armies 
and you know the threats now are sort of this war among the people mm-hmm. insurgencies and and hybrid threats and and again that you know suddenly that's gone out the window suddenly we're back to the good old days yeah. of you know with tank warfare in in germany being a thing that people worry about we shouldn't we shouldn't be flip-flopping because of something like this that happens we should be cautious about saying everything has changed and we're now in a completely different world. But we, don't, we still don't really know what's going on. We don't really know in inverted commas who's winning. I mean, it looks bad for the Russians. If this was their plan, it's a bad plan. Yeah. But, you know, we, it still wouldn't surprise me if suddenly there was a big advance or if there was a big Ukrainian retreat or, you know, a collapse. They, these things can happen. You, we really don't know what's going on. Obviously, we don't know really what will be acceptable goals in peace talks and, and how, how they'll resolve. Uh, and, of course, we don't know whether some kind of escalation might happen. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so there's a lot, I think, and, and, and it can end in a number of ways where I think after it, we might just go, oh, right, we're back to normal. That was just a little, a little blurb. So that, so that sounds, so I, I accept all of that, um, what you've just said, because of course, one of the things that you do is kind of in your work is you sort of paint scenarios for possible futures. Mm. One possible future is we just go back to, back to normal how we were and it's, it's not that big a deal. Um, I mean, I mean, just to take this specific example, you know, you look at, well, the Ukraine is an ongoing conflict. I mean, as far as the Ukrainians are concerned, this is just a sort of, yeah. you know, an increase really in a conflict that they've been in since 2014. So let's yeah. not forget that Russia was already kind of at war with Ukraine. So, so you know, that should be an indication that this is a potential flashpoint. Um, and of course, it's not, it's certainly not inconsistent with Russia's kind of attitude and the way that they've intervened in stuff transnistria war in the 90s and georgia in the in the you know 2008 sure. and their slightly their slightly cavalier attitude to international law yeah. um and and uh, sovereignty yeah. exactly litvinenko poisoning and the salisbury poisonings and um you know the general sort of uh, but also the, the kind of meddling in the information environment and the mm. attempts to foment division. I don't think it's controversial to say that that's been what they're, what they're doing. Um, I mean, that's certainly been part of their strategy, I think, has been to try and um, leverage uh, apart, you know, divisions that exist in, in, in the West. And again, I don't want to fall victim to hindsight bias, but it doesn't feel as surprising as perhaps it you know just sorry remind me what hindsight bias is or yeah um... so this is a really um prevalent bias which sometimes people call it the i knew it all along effect yeah the the sort of canonical example i think or when it was first really identified was a psychologist called mark leary who interviewed people in the would have been the 1980 general uh, election presidential election Mm -hmm. in, uh, in the u.s and that was between carter and reagan I remember. And it, yeah, I think it was the first American election I re- I remember. Well, it was generally considered to be a fairly close run thing, and he he uh, just polled a bunch of people, asked them who they thought would win, and how confident they were in that prediction. Yeah. And I think it slightly favoured Reagan, but most people said it would be close. But I think it would be Reagan. Yeah. And then it was a quite a, it was a bit of a landslide in the end. And he went back, you know, six months later and spoke to the same people and said, can you remember what you what you predicted? Yeah. And everyone remembered thinking, yeah, it was obvious Reagan was going to win. Yeah. So the trouble is that we go through life constructing stories as to why what's happened is very plausible. In a sense, that's a, that's a rational thing to do. It's, it's like, well, we want to find a model that fits the data we've got. And so we go through life 
if you like, I suppose from a machine learning point of view, you might say overfitting uh, the present uh, uh, and our stories about the past to, the, yeah. to, to what's just happened. But so are you, try- it- are you trying to say in relation to kind of Ukraine-Russia situation that it, that it wasn't inevitable? I mean, at one level, this has been brewing since 2014 or whenever you want to, or the end of the Cold War or whenever you want yeah. to sort of draw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, as inevitable as it might feel when you look at that and you yeah. go, look, this is classic Russia. We've still got to be careful of, you know, realising that it might not have happened. Well, but that's also reassuring because if everything is just written in stone, then uh, we have no agency and no uh, ability to change the future, create the future. So so that's reassuring to me that everything isn't inevitable. That's absolutely right. And and, and it means, uh, I guess the thing is that we need to remember there's more uncertainty than we we realise. Because every time some uncertainty gets resolved because something happens we convinced ourselves it was not really that surprising. So I suppose what this kind of tells us is that the world is very uncertain. Yeah. You know, and there's more uncertainty about, well, how things could have gone. And the fact they went this particular way uh, mm. doesn't mean that was inevitable, you know. And, but it, yeah. and in likewise, you know, we should extrapolate mm. into saying that the future is also very uncertain. And, and that's one of the advantages of... Do you think doing scenario analysis is yeah? Sorry, Ron. Sorry, no, I just um, I've asked this question a number of times on the podcast of different people, and everyone answers it slightly different. But do you think the current time is more or less or equally uncertain as previous times? I, I think honestly, the probability that we're living in a time that's unusual is low. Why do you say that? Because it just you know not most times aren't unusual. If if we if we're trying to convince ourselves that now is a particularly interesting time, then the burden of proof is on us to show that it's particularly interesting. Because the alternative viewpoint just says, well, this time is probably no more or less interesting than any other time. And and that's what you should expect. In a sort of abstract way, I accept that argument. But isn't the fact that the world is so incredibly interconnected now, so when Northern Rock fails, mm. uh, you know, it... Uh, it contributes to a cascade of the whole global financial crisis in 2008 in a way that had Northern Rock's predecessor 30 years ago failed, it, it, it may not have precipitated quite such a, a cascade effect. So it's, there's something about the connectivity of our times which creates economic and other value, but also mm. great fragility and uncertainty. Um, that would be the counter-argument or one of the counter-arguments, yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah, I think it's interesting. It, it reminds me of... Um... You can imagine thinking about how to design, I don't know, a brick wall or something where you think, you know, we could join all the bricks together loosely so that, you know, when one of them gets hit, that brick crumbles, but it doesn't affect the the rest of the wall too badly compared to one where all the bricks are tightly joined together. And, you know, that means that each one of them is less likely to fail. uh, But when one does, it has a really catastrophic effect. Okay. And I feel like you're saying we're, we're in, we've got that kind of brick wall. And so the question is... Is the world, with its interdependence, which in, so, in a lot of ways adds to security, yeah. does it make things worse when they fail? That is certainly one of the questions, yeah. Yeah, yeah but, but I feel like that's still... You're, you're suggesting, I think, that it's more fragile. And I think what I'm saying is interdependence is not necessarily... It could be making things stronger. I mean, there's a few ways it might be making the international system more robust. Mm. But, you know, you, you're suggesting that it's both sort of more fragile and more devastating when it goes wrong. And I think I'm saying, well, it could be, and I probably err on the side of thinking it's less fragile. So in other words, there's there's less probability of any mm. single part of the system failing. But when it does, it has a more significant effect. But what, So what are you saying? Are you saying 
In well, let's put, let's put some skin on. Should we put some, some skin on the boat? Yeah, go on, go on, go on, go on. One of the things I think is interesting, and I, here I'm moving away from all the caveats because I'm, I'm yeah. moving to speculation okay. mode now. I'll edit those out. Yeah. But, <laughs> no, I won't. But, so, I mean, I think this it tells us something quite interesting about conflict. One of the things I think people were surprised about with, with Russia is it was very hard to see what the benefit was. Of invading Ukraine. Ukraine, You know, everyone could see the benefit of looking like you were going to invade. Well, we're going to force some concessions out of the Ukrainians. Mm. We're going to threaten everyone. You know, they'll back down. They'll agree to not join NATO. They might accept some kind of, you know, Finlandization or whatever. Everyone could see that. But actually invading, you you sort of think, well, what, how, where will this, what are you going to gain? What are the Russians going to actually gain out of this? Okay. Um, I think there was one very specific way in which you could see it working for them. Um, which would be uh, that, you know, it would turn out to be a very quick victory, that they could occupy Kiev, you know, depose Zelensky, put in their man instead. Uh, and then the West would be, well, that's that. Mm. What can we do about it? No sanctions. So it's a sort of one very specific way where it could have succeeded. But in general, it just feels that what you can get from armed, armed conflict these days is just less important than it was in the past. So oh, that's interesting. What do you mean by that? Well... So my tendency is to think about the costs and the benefits of courses of action and whether or okay. not there are long, long-term long trends which are changing those things. Yeah, yeah. So in, in the case of, of war, particularly war of conquest, the, on the cost side, humans are, just have got more valuable over time. So that, that in itself just means it's generally more costly to go so, to war, so more ki- costly so to commit. Lo- losing a soldier in battle. Uh, You're losing you, more you, now. Yeah, the, the, the price is higher. Yeah. The price is higher. Yeah. But what is a war of conquest for? What you get from conquest is things like, well, primary resources. In the case of Ukraine, in the old days, it would be food, fertile land, like places with mines, yeah. uh, places that produce lots of, lots of primary goods. And primary goods, just as a matter of, you know, one of the consequences of the way that economic growth happens, are declining in value. You know, primary goods are less important now as a share of GDP. And the UK farming, for example, I think it was it would it was something like fifty percent of GDP a hundred hundred or so years ago. Now it's about two percent. So I can see you're painting a picture. People are becoming less valuable. Goods are becoming less valuable. Things well, th- things that are in a place are becoming yeah. less valuable. So and manufacturing, of course, is in a place. But it can be moved. You know, you can move a factory. Yeah. It's, it's costly to move a factory. But how much does it cost to move Facebook? You know, if you want to take over Facebook, you can't. So sorry, um, primary is yeah, mining, stuff, mi- um, secondary is Mining, farming, yeah, um, secondary. Tertiary is yeah. Facebook or something. No, well, tertiary is services. Yeah, and then yeah. you could say information. I think some people consider information to yeah. be... A, I suppose what I'm saying is we might be seeing an example of why it is that conflict is just becoming less and less important and i and i feel like this is turns into a really good example of that like yeah, russia is very palpably not gaining anything out of this and in fact it's it's hugely costly for them and we haven't really seen a conflict on this scale certainly not in europe for a long time and but and, is applying an economic lens to this the wrong lens because it seems idea well it seems ideological or existential to putin as much as i can understand his psychology which i can't I buy the arguments that you're making. I don't know. I think the cost-benefit analysis that Putin is making it has wildly different criteria. Well, that's another thing I think we we need to look at, and I think which we which is an important lesson for yeah. analysts for forecasters. Yeah, is 
how far can you get by assuming people are basically rational? Mm. Are you taking actions that give you what you are trying to achieve? Yeah. You know, can your actions conceivably result in an outcome which you would consider to be positive? You know, what's Russia going to do? Well, what, do, what does Russia want? And now, were they just wrong? Did they honestly believe this would work? Or was it actually just irrational? You know, it's like literally a kind of action where they hadn't really thought thought it through. It was just, it's what you do. My sense is this conversation is far too rational for what is an incredibly <laughs> irrational. The only way I can think to describe it is Putin just wanted to kind of fuck shit up because it's he didn't like the current world order, the current future direction of where things are going. And this seems to be part of the political playbook these days, which is just insert chaos here yeah. and, you know, deal with the consequences w- without really deeply considering what they might be. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make sense of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, the question is whether or not that's something which is becoming more or less prevalent. So I suppose what, what I'm saying is, could it, first of all, people can do things, yeah. even powerful people who are surrounded by systems yeah. that enable them can do things that are just really weird even from their point of view you need to leave more space open for people to make mistakes like that churchill said however sure you are that you could easily win a war um that there wouldn't be one if the other guy didn't think he had a chance i suppose what churchill was saying there and what i agree with is that in order for there to be a war someone needs to be making a mistake yeah from a sort of game theory point of view you know someone has incorrectly estimated that they'll win they can't both be right. They can't both, on average, have consumed the same information and both have formed the view that they're the one who's going to win. Someone must be wrong. What this tells us, and what we always need to keep in mind, is that no matter, we can look at, I don't know, let's take China and Taiwan. We can go, you know, Chinese government, they're going to look at Ukraine. Mm. They're going to take into account how costly it would be to invade Taiwan. They're going to seal the sanctions on Russia. And they're going to go, well, we don't want that to happen to us. And it's going to deter them. Well, maybe not. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm saying. Like, there is plenty of room for people to, to do things that, you know, even at the time or certainly in hindsight, look like mistakes. But isn't it possible that both could be right? So David and Goliath, you know, uh, Goliath mm. was stronger and David was faster, you know, and it just so... It might have been that David got a bit lucky. Well, exactly. You know, weird stuff happens. Yeah. Um, yeah, and in know, some sense, there's yeah. some things like this where you can't find out until you run the experiment. I mean, until, you know, everyone's been saying, uh, you know, Russians uh, actually still a big military, Mm. still very powerful. Other people have been saying, yeah, but, you know, they've got very corrupt military. Their kit is, you know, not as well kept as it should be. And we don't really know. We can't judge that in advance. You know, in a way, you have to run the experiment to find out what's true. So I'm unfairly putting you on the spot in the middle of this messiness Mm. to say, have we gone past a point of no return? And quite rightly, you're resisting saying yes or no. So where where is this taking us? I suppose I want to put everything in in the context of saying, let's not get too fixated on the idea that we we know what's going on and we know what it means, right? It's very early days. And I think let's, let's pick on some of the things that we think actually seem to have changed and ask questions about those. So what, what might it have affected? So I've got a few 
observations, mm-hmm. like two two things really, which I think you know these interesting early signals of one of which is the effect that it's had in the West in our political narrative, and again early days, but I think it's been really interesting the way that. Um, what has previously been, I mean, what I would have considered the biggest, if you like, social or stability sort of threat to the UK and certainly the US was this polarisation. Political polarisation. Political polarisation. Yeah, yeah, not, I don't want to say it's driven by, certainly isn't driven by the Russians, but let's say exploited by the Russians. Um, And that division, what was worrying about it, I think, was that it was happening either side of the center. You know, you look mm-hmm. at the kinds of political opinions people held in the US, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it's a sort of nice bell curve. Yeah. And you compare that with, you know, a year or two ago, and you've got two lumps. Um, you know, literally, it's kind of a visual representation of well, that's polarization. The, going back to Facebook briefly, the, the algorithms yeah. amplifying more extreme content and pushing people into those those extreme positions. So, so I, I was really intrigued to see the way that people in different from different sort of background or political backgrounds have responded to to Russia uh, mm. and the invasion of Ukraine. I, I, and the, Do you think there's a kind of middle ground consensus emerging? Yeah, I, and that's the interesting thing, that you, t- you take the sort of left, which... Um, you know, you you have you have got your old your old left. They're sitting this one out, right? That's the kind of this is an imperialist struggle. It's in one set of imperialists against another set of imperialists. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, none of this is about the workers who we should care about. Kind of old left view, and then you have the uh, sort of new the new kind of alternative right, if you like, in the US, who you know seem to be seeing Putin as you know perhaps the Russian Trump. Someone who knows what he wants goes out and gets it, and he's a good guy. And then, and then you've got you know the, take the sort of new left, the kind of identity politics type left, mm. who I think you know, g- given that the the approach to analysing problems tends tends to be about well, who's doing the oppressing and who are the victims, you know. And, and for the last few years, yeah. oppressing has been the system, and the victims have been you know minority groups. This fits very clearly into that pattern, and the Russians are the oppressors. And the Ukrainians are the victims. So I think it's, it's interesting that that fits quite neatly into, well, actually, yes, this is bad. Russia's doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you've got the traditional libertarian right who are opposed to autocracies and authoritarianism. And and I, it's almost like I feel like there's a joining of hands across that that spectrum. Um, and and the ex- it's the extremes, the real, real, the proper extremes who, you know, are either pro-Russian or at least not pro-Ukrainian. And, and there's much more of a unifi- unification around that, the, the idea of sort of being sympathetic to Ukraine here and seeing what Russia's doing as, as wrong. Yeah, it feels kind of old-fashioned in some ways, doesn't it? Yeah. But, um, but would you say it's broadly coalescing around that? I, I suppose I'm saying it's nice that suddenly there is an issue that we can be centrist about. We can all agree, except for the fringes. You know, we all agree that this is bad. And it feels really quite refreshing after decades of internal strife that we have an issue where we show that actually there are some fundamental values that unite us. And um, What are those values then? Sovereignty? Invading people is bad. Yeah, okay. <laughs> invading people who don't want to be invaded is bad. I think that's, a, that's a, as close to a core value, really. I mean, you know, self-determination. For, yeah, and whether you want to frame that as sovereignty, we should uphold sovereignty, or whether we want to frame it as you shouldn't oppress people. Mm. It's you know, it comes out as the same 
disapproval, doesn't it? Okay. And and um, so I, that to me is was interesting. And as I said, you know, I, perfectly possible that as soon as it all blows over, we'll go back to hating each other again. But yeah. um, it would be nice if this caused some sort of reevaluation. Hmm. You know, if you like, identifies what our really essential values are. And the other one is about this. So maybe the, we haven't gone past the point of no return. Maybe we've gone full circle somehow, have we? And reasserted the importance and value of the nation state. Is that an exaggeration? Is it a nation state or is it simply the kinds of actions that people disapprove of? I mean, it, it not. I, I feel like you could approve of, you could disapprove of what Russia was doing, mm. even if you didn't really think the idea of a nation state is necessarily particularly sustainable. I, I, so I mean, I mean the other the other thing I think which is which I think is worth asking uh, questions about is the this issue this this long term story I think we've we've had probably since the beginning of the two thousands mm. um, about the decline of the West which is mm. not unrelated to the problem of polarization I think there's just been a general sense that we've lost sight of or have abandoned. Mm. You know, this kind of essential liberal values that we always had of kind of democracy is good. Um, you know, freedom is good. Mm. Uh, in the 80s, that kept us all going, didn't it? It was democracy and freedom. 90s, suddenly everyone got democracy and freedom. Brilliant. This has showed end yeah. of history. And then suddenly it all starts to fall apart. We, mm. we, we try and give Iraq some democracy and freedom and Afghanistan some democracy and freedom, and it doesn't seem to work. Yeah. And then you've got, uh, you know, the increasing power of, of countries like China, mm. which don't which seem to be getting on fine with that democracy and freedom. And it really f- feels like, you know, for the last 20 years, that idea that these things are good mm. has, been, has been challenged. And then at the same time, you have all this kind of internal division and... Mm. Uh, this could be something like a last gasp of authoritarianism. And I'm certainly not saying it isn't, but I'm saying this is what happens when you're, you, you're an authoritarian country and you decide to be authoritarian. And what you do is you invade a neighbor because you don't like it. Um, and hey, presto, you're cut off from the global financial system. You know, you've got sanctions slapped on you by everyone. Well, maybe what this shows is that actually uh, mm. that approach isn't sustainable anymore. You know, it's not a far off conflict in a country. We know little about people who we don't care about, you know, that the all of this kind of the if you like, the kind of interdependent, the economic and mm. um, and social independence, which you get uh, from essentially democratic, democratic sort of liberal world is also turns out to actually give you an immune system against. So, that I mean, kind that- of that kind of behavior. That, that's what I want this to be, a last yeah. gasp of authoritarianism. I mean, it could be. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think, you know, you, you've got, if I was an autocrat now, I would be really rethinking, you know, in, invading my neighbours. If you were a real hardcore Russian nationalist, if what you wanted was a really strong, powerful Russia, mm. the best thing you could do is try and push your country in the direction of being, you know, more like Germany. You should be more open and freer and encourage the middle class and less corrupt and you know actually then you end up being strong and powerful by doing things which are i suppose it's that paradox isn't it democracies kind of look weak from the outside there's Mm. lots of people arguing governments are in power for two or three years and then they get voted out and you know there's protest people are constantly criticizing the government and you can imagine looking at that and thinking well that's not a very good system is it if you're if you if you want to have a strong country let's go for the one where you've got a nice big iron-fisted strong man (laughs) but it turns out that you know autocracies that look strong can in a lot of ways be really fragile and democracies that look weak and and fragmented actually turn out to be quite strong well it's the same point we were making earlier around well the into, well, it's 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 analogous with the point we were making earlier around the 
the connectivity of the internet. Yeah. You know, it creates more fragility to the brick wall or, or society, or, or it makes it stronger. Uh, and it probably does both of those things in, in different ways. So, I mean, your whole thing is around making better decisions, right? That's mm. kind of what your company now does. What can we learn about decision-making? You should always make sure that you treat the future is as uncertain as it is. Don't run away with the idea that we're definitely looking at a trend. The, the present isn't particularly informative. Um, even when surprising things happen, uh, it's like a wave doesn't tell you very much about the tide. We're, we're, we're only ever in waves and you've got to leave it for some time before we can start saying, you know, now, now we're, we're on the cusp of some great change. But on the other hand, you know, as they say, all fires are the same size when they start, and um, <laughs> and you and uh, so I think it is worth worth saying. Well, this is informative in in some sense, and I think it you know it does um, it does it should change our view of the future in in the ways that I think we've discussed. One thing we haven't touched on though, which I think is really interesting, is the, um, the sort of information space. Yeah, let's talk about which that. Which, of course, is really key if you're a you know for for analysis. Mm. I suppose I went into this expecting to be really much more informed than say we were you know for the first gulf war in the early, in the early 90s you you probably remember it i do um, yeah. yeah you thought in this crisis we'd have more reliable journalism or reporting yeah, or data yeah yeah that's the interesting i mean anyone who's who's really lived through being on the home front in a war, you know, recognises, okay, well, we don't know what's going on. And it's so, it's a really strange feeling of, yeah. of thinking, well, you know, we want, surely we need, you know, we've got, where are the journalists? We think, well, there's only, there's a few foreign correspondents and they're in, you know, three different places. They yeah. don't really know what's going on. Um, and, you know, in the old days, you uh, just had to wait for, you know, the BBC to tell you at six o'clock what was going on. Now you spend all day browsing the internet, reading snippets of information, and at the end of the day, you wait for the BBC to tell you what's going on at 6pm because you're actually not particularly informed by any of it. I, th I think that's been quite interesting, is watching, seeing how how uninformative, you know, news is. So much news. There's so much, you know, there's combat footage being uploaded. There's photos being uploaded. There are some really good websites mm. like uh, Oryx, I think it's called, you know, who are trying to quantify the damage that has been done to the to, to both sides by looking at you know damaged vehicles uh there's things like bellingcat who do great investigation yeah, yeah, yeah. but you know by and large 99 percent of what's out there is is a news story somewhere which you don't really know if it's true it's a statement by someone it's you but know and, and isn't that wasn't that always true yeah. but there's just a lot more of it yeah, it, but it really it really dri drives it home. I think when you're dealing with a situation which is sort of spread out and. But isn't uh, there a cumulative effect of all that stuff? It's kind of crazy that we've got dictators versus comedians. You know, Zelensky until very recently, <laughs> or, or you know, uh, Trump, uh, very different politically. But you know, was a essentially reality TV stars, uh, and you know, our political leaders are entertainers, comedians, or. Or dictators and autocrats. I mean, what what a sorry state of affairs. <laughs> um, or or maybe that's just part of um, you know the, the, the communication. I guess as a, as a as a naive ex scientist, I want some objective truth yeah. that underpins the yeah, coverage and the news. Yeah. and and I don't know what's happened to objective truth. Well, I, I don't think it's changed. I mean, you know, people have been saying you know the first casualty of war is truth. Yeah. You know that one, and it's true. 
still true. That is, that's what's so striking. I mm. think that's why I sort of something that I was thinking about is why can't we exploit the information that we have now before the the invasion mm. uh, happened? You know, people were tracking the planes on flight radar. Yeah. You know, so, oh look, this flight's just left Moscow and yeah. that's going to Belarus. And what does it all mean? Well, yeah. I don't, we don't really know, right? We're not actually that much more informed. And I think if you think about the victories of machine learning and mm. big data, yeah, you know the old cliche of the drunk looking for his keys uh, under the streetlight because that's where the light is. Yeah. Right, I think in some sense that's where the victories for machine learning have been. They've been in the things which is easy for machine learning to do, like, you know, analysing photographs or analysing corpuses of text or, um, you know, learning how to play games in a very sort of reduced version of the world. But what are you saying? Now is they're moving well, we into want, the shadows. If we want to know about pattern of life, you know, we want to predict someone, you know, whether someone's going to get on the tube or get on the bus based on where their mobile phone is and what time of day it is. Yeah. Brilliant. We we can really really good at modelling that kind of stuff because it's all highly measurable mm. and it's and it's very close to the real world. You know, mm. where your phone is is yeah most of the time is where you are, and so we predict where your phone is, which is measured. We're, we're predicting where you are. I think the, it's what's interesting to me about the situation of this war, like every other war, is that information just doesn't exist. It's not being collected. You know, the world is not... The, who is winning this war is not something that's being measured somewhere. If there is bits of data... Is it that's being measured in the hearts and minds of the Ukrainian people? And the- yeah, they don't have sensors attached, which produce nice big <laughs> yeah, they CSV files. Yeah, they have files. social media. And yeah, they- yeah but, but I mean, the, the, yeah, the, but that, that's, that's true. And that's an, but how informative is it about... If you want to know well, who's going to win, is Russia going to be in Kiev by this time next month? And so how do you deal with that? Well, you, I mean, I think in some ways... If you think about the difference between what you need to do, you know, machine analytics versus what you need for human analytics. Mm. I mean, generally to do machine learning, you want data that's a lot taller than it is wide. You know, you want sort of Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of observations and a small number of features. But the way that humans think about the world is it's very broad, large number of features, but a small number of data points, as it were. And and so I think, you know, this, this kind of situation is not very like any other situation you know, you've got to think about all the different features that this particular conflict has. And the way that humans think about um, those kinds of problems, quite rightly, is to analogize, but no- nothing is a perfect fit. Mm. So, you know, you, you want to pick on one feature of the conflict at a time and say, okay, well, what other things is this like? Is this a bit like Vietnam? Or is mm. it a bit like uh, the invasion of Iraq? What's mm. it a bit like? And so we can start to think about it that way. But, um, you know, that's still, re- I mean, that really is a very human sort of approach to analysis. Mm. There, there just isn't, there isn't a kind of, at the moment, a machine learning solution, which is going to give you particular insight into something like a war, which is, I think is really interesting. It is, but I don't find that surprising yet. Uh, well, I think in, the, in, the fu- in the future, maybe, but yeah, right now, there's that famous, I think it's a Picasso quote, you know, uh, computers are very good at what humans are bad at and humans are very good at what... Uh, I think Moravec's paradox, I know that one as. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I think I... Okay. That is... Uh, as true now as it ever has been, but so but, but, right, but that's the weird thing. So I'm I'm just saying I I think you know everyone talks about Vietnam first TV war. Yeah. Well, this is the first you know re- social media World War Two radio war. Yeah. It's like you know we've got every every time we go, right right. I mean it's not, certainly not the first social media war. I mean in the sense that there has been a lot of things happen while social media but sort of globe i guess global information war or something yeah, yeah. so you definitely you've There's got been lots of sort of indiv- individual conflicts that have been massively 
influenced by information and misinformation, but it feels much more global in nature, this particular conflict. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that this has generated more news than any uh, conflict I can remember, you know, and it feels... And, and there's certainly, I mean, a lot more action on the internet. I suppose what I'm saying is it's, it is, I suppose in one sense, not surprising mm. that, well, even with the enormous amount of information we have, yeah. we actually find ourselves as uninformed as we are with any, any other war, you know? So what, what the hell do we do about all this, Nick? I mean, I'm so, you know, we're all drowning in data and information and how do we, uh, I want binary answers, Nick. That's yeah. what I want. I, no, want I, I want to know that we're past the point of no return. There's a new world order coming. It's going to be sweetness and light and green uh, hillocks as far as well, the what, eye can what's see. The, so what would, that, what would that look like for okay. you? What would the Roland utopia look like? Uh, well, going back to some of what we talked about earlier, but, you know, um, well, people aren't oppressed. Country, you know, countries mm. aren't invaded against their will. Sovereignty, democracy, freedom equality, you know, all, all of those good things uh, that a bleeding heart North London liberal, you know, would is a cliche of, of that sort of persona. Uh, look, I mean, I, I think you'd have to conclude that those futures mm. are slightly more favoured now. I mean, I think that's that's got to be a conclusion for all kinds of there's there's sort of the tactical reasons. Well, Russia finally, you know, has found something it can't just get away with, which mm. is, I don't think anyone really likes the Russian government. They haven't got very many friends. And uh, and it's nice to be able to finally say, well, we've discovered where the red line is. Mm. We didn't know where that was before. Um, and the Russians didn't think it was here. Mm. And it turns out it was there. Mm. Um, and I, and, and that, so just in, very tactical, a malign actor on the world stage mm. has been checked. They've had their ambitions checked. That's, mm. that's good. That's score one for kind of, you know, anti-authoritarianism. Mm. But then I think that those longer term trends that we talked about, as I said, I think the consistent theme of all the things I've said is that we, we really shouldn't ascribe too much um, diagnosticity to what's happened in the last two months. But is this, is this we talked about the last gasp of the sort of, of authoritarian. authoritarianism. Yeah. You know, it certainly isn't going to encourage the, uh, you know, China to be, to be more aggressive. As I said, there's that kind of slightly encouraging little flicker of unity in in the West, which we haven't seen for some time, so so I think you you'd have to say that this you know for those longer term trends are positive. Obviously, like any war, it's a huge negative for the people involved. But you know, if that's your if your future, I think is you know is is you want to see a world full of liberal democracies all trading with each other, then I think this is a slightly slightly positive indication. But as I said, I mean, I think you know we we just need to we need to continually remember how uncertain things are, mm. and and try to avoid you know making too much out of out of what seems significant, but is still you know in a year's time, two years time, five years time, you know we will look back on it and it probably won't seem as significant as it does now, like anything else. Mm. It's very few things that pass through the history filter and seem as significant as they seemed at the time. Thank you, Nick. I found that really helpful. And I really liked what he said at the end, despite numerous caveats and careful expectation management, that the utopian futures that I was pushing for are perhaps slightly more favoured as a result of the devastating scenes that we've seen over in Ukraine. And I really liked what he said about democracies seeming weak from the outside, but actually being strong and autocracies being the opposite. And he had lots of little expressions such as a wave doesn't tell you much about the tide and all fires are the same size when they start. 
which I think are really intriguing nuggets of wisdom. And I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation. So please do check out the links in the episode description if you want to find out more about Nick. In particular, you might want to check out the Cognitive Engineering Podcast, a weekly podcast about analysis and decision-making that Nick appears on and is very interesting and entertaining. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community. I would like to thank all of our community members, clients, partners, and patrons, without whom we couldn't produce this podcast. If you want to find out a little bit more about us, please check out www.weareliminal.co. If I can ask you to like and subscribe to this podcast or share it with others who might enjoy it as well, that would be great. Until next time, please keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye. Mm.